0: You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. How is everyone doing today? I'm doing very well. I've been receiving lots and lots of great reviews and ratings on various apps, guys, so thank you very much for doing that. Today, we are joined by a very interesting guest who I'm looking forward to speaking with for many different reasons. I'm joined by Martin Paver today, who is CEO and founder of Projecting Success. They are a passionate team of visionaries project managers, and data scientists on a mission to change the way we deliver projects. I know that everyone listening is already captivated, because I am, particularly because Martin potentially sees a vision in the future where QSs, risk managers are less necessary. I have to say, Martin, this is scary, scary stuff for me to hear. Welcome to the show, though. How are you?
1: Thank you, Paul. appreciate it. Yeah, I'm very good. Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this session. So I love spreading the word about, you know, the future of project delivery. And in some respects, it's not the future. So some of this stuff is already with us now.
0: And do you love spreading? I mean, there's loads of people out there who want to see less QSs or want to see no QSs. Do you love spreading the world the word imagining a world without QSs?
1: <laughs> so I don't think that's the objective, right? It's not about putting people out of work. It's about I'm saying, joking. let's move us all up the value chain. So if you move up the value chain, we do less process monkey stuff. And it's more about insights. It's more about, you know, it, it's a better job, right? It's a better paid job. And it's all about your superpowers. So if you can outperform somebody else because your superpowers are more sort of refined, you'll win more contracts, you'll earn more money.
0: Now, this, this is exactly why I said this is going to be a fascinating conversation. And we're going to get on to... I kind of play with the words of the death of the QS, it's much more like the evolution of the QS, the evolution of the industry, right? And we'll get to that. And I think that's, it's already captivating. So we can ground the conversation in an understanding of like your journey and who you are and your experience and I guess the business that you're now in. Could you tell us about yourself?
1: Yeah, cool so thanks paul so so martin paper and i started out 30 odd years ago as an engineer so i got a degree in engineering a chartered engineer but i'll stop paying my subs so i can't call myself that anymore uh and a chartered project professional all right so i had 20 years in government i led some big projects you know one of the biggest I led was the your fighter simulator where we worked for nato for about four years and that's a really really complex project right so you, we're creating a simulator for an aircraft which has been developed at the same time. So the baseline is always moving. So it's quite a difficult project. And then I left in about 2010, 2011, and I left because I was frustrated, right? I was frustrated that we would just repeat the same mistakes time and time again. Once you've been around for 20 years, right? You think, oh, I don't want to do this again because, you know, we just reinvented the same wheels we've reinvented before. And I worked for this company then called... Lloyds Register. I did that for a couple of years. Then I went to work for a, an SME and they put me into Aldermaston and I was leading a billion dollar project. And in that billion dollar project, I saw, we weren't learning from one project to the next project to the next project, right? Making all the same mistakes. And I was brought in to rescue the project and I could see that people weren't listening to the data, right? There was no sort of forensic analysis of that data. So I then spun a company up with this other guy. We grew it. And I sold out of that in 2017. I thought, no, this is not what I want to do. I don't want to do project management anymore. I want to change the profession by starting to leverage this experience of the past. All right. So we go through these lessons learned processes, and that's part of the problem at the moment, or lessons learned processes. If instead we can start to extract some of that data, we can use machine learning then, so that tells us about leveraging the experience instead of human beings trying to learn everything about everything and every single concept. That is fundamentally broken. So that's set me on my journey, basically. And since then, we've set up the Project Data Analytics Task Force. We've got an apprenticeship going as well where we're training people in this stuff. We've got white papers out there. Uh, We've set up a construction data trust. We've done all sorts of stuff. So we're now starting to get to critical mass in the industry where this is now starting to take off. So it's been a five-year journey, but it's now breaking through at last.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. No, I can see, and I'm seeing more and more exposure to the topics that you're raising. We've had other people on the podcast um, a few episodes ago talking about similar things as well. When we were talking offline, you mentioned that you, in between the transition from project management to project data analytics, where you are now, there was kind of an in-between process, which was, I think you were involved in creating something like 20,000 lessons learned is what you'd, you'd mentioned to me. And that is probably, lessons learned will be something that probably resonates with so many people in construction. Because like you say, you'd finish your job and then all try and get around the table and say, what went wrong, what we're going to do right next time round. Which to some degree is kind of what machine learning is all about, right? How did doing, I guess, traditional lessons learned, those 20,000 lessons learned that you did, what did that look like? And how did that then colour what you are now doing? So,
1: Paul, I set out on a mission and I made myself massively unpopular, right, because I put in freedom of <laughs> information
0: requests. Did you enjoy doing that?
1: Um, it was a risk, right? It was a calculated yeah. risk. And I thought, I'm going to accept people, but if I don't do this, I won't get the data set I need to make a difference. So I knocked on people's door and I said, would you share these lessons? I said, no, no, we can't share anything, we're too busy. So what I did instead was to say, right, If you won't share that data with me, there's a process and it's a government process where it's not me being saboteur or anything like that. It's a government process, which enables me to ask for that data. So I asked for the data and some people gave me it. Some people didn't, people who didn't, I went to appeal, I tried again. So I won 50% of an appeal and one of them I took to court and I won it at court Really? and that made me really unpopular and what I tried to do basically was to say, to the public sector is that it's not your data you are the custodians of public data it's our data right it's a community asset
0: so just so I'm just so I'm understanding sorry to interrupt you so these are public projects being delivered by contractors developers engineers whoever who you are saying this is public data I want to see it so that I can analyze it for the greater public good roughly
1: yeah 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 and they say no you can't see it so they were saying it's reputationally damaging. So I went through all the rules, and that's not a valid clause for turning down a freedom of information request. So that's why it succeeded in court, was because they said, no, on balance, that's not the right answer. So in terms of these lessons learned, right, I got hold of loads of them. And there was one project that was making the same mistake time and time again. I could see it, all right. So I spent months analysing this data, and I was doing it old-school spreadsheets, looking through it, right, because I'm an engineer and a project manager, I'm not a data scientist. And I realized there was patterns in that data that nobody was picking up, but you got into the data and it wasn't good enough, right? You didn't have the context, You didn't have the, the impact statement. so you don't know if the lesson learned is something that's gonna save you 50p or gonna save you 50 million. And something else you don't understand is if you're driving down a road, right? You don't wanna know about every single traffic situation across every road across Britain, You want to know about the traffic situation on the road that you're driving down. So it needs to be contextualized to your sort of specifics of your projects. And this lessons learned process doesn't do that because all we do is fill in a form on a spreadsheet, which is a box ticking exercise, and that doesn't help you with recall. So what we're trying to do through sort of moving away from lessons learned instead, right? So lessons learned is a human process of trying to learn everything about everything If we turn it into leveraging experience, so we're using the machines to recall the experience contextualized so we can understand what went on before, then you can take account of it so you can mitigate it the next time out.
0: This is fascinating stuff. I personally find this really, really intriguing because you've kind of gone on the journey from you almost kept the original construction hat on didn't you when you said right I want to go and have a look at all of these lessons learned and I'm going to find the problem and I'm going to prove to you how we can all improve and then you looked at the data set and I assume you thought crikey this is a complete mess we can't actually really do a huge amount with this and for many people listening it's quite hard to contextualise that data, how it needs to look and how you can improve it but something that I read on your LinkedIn page which was a quote I absolutely loved because it It made it really simple, right? The the quote that you have on your LinkedIn page is, If Ferrari and the Sky Cycling team deliver success based on small margins, how can project delivery professionals, a.k.a. all us folk in construction, ignore the large margins that are clearly evident from past project delivery? It's time to bring new thinking to a subject that could save organisations millions, save reputations and transform productivity. And when you think about it, in that context, okay, forget construction projects. Just think about Ferrari and Sky. It's they're going for milliseconds, or like it's tiny, tiny margins. And we know in our sector that the level of delay, the volume of projects in delay, etc., etc. We all know projects have problems. The margins are actually massive, and we're doing nothing to attack them. Or until you, we were perhaps doing not enough to attack them. So talk about then now getting that data set and then how machine learning can actually help change things.
1: So there's some mixed opinions on this, right? Some people think you can take all the data, you stick it through some magic tool, and you finish up with an answer, right? So there's magic tools out there on the market, and I'm not gonna name them, but what I'm finding is, is the data in the main is not good enough. And it's not good enough because most of the data is a digitization of, of existing processes and existing forms, all right? So we take a form from 20 years ago, like a lessons learned form, and somebody comes on and still got an app that looks like a lessons learned form, but is now an app. So nobody sort of stood back from it and said, what's the problem statement that we're trying to answer, all right? So what we're trying to do through the task force and through some work we're doing with the Environment Agency and various other people is to say, so with HS2 as well, we're going to look at carbon, we're going to look at climate resilience, risk, and next generation PMO is to say, what is the problem statement that we're trying to answer? So, risk management is the human process of guessing what's going to go wrong on a project. And the risk manager comes around to you. So, on, on 60 grand a year, 70 grand a year, right? The risk manager will come around and say, have you filled in your risk register this week? Right? Have you updated your actions? Now, I can get a bot to do that, right? It just comes and nags you once a week and said, so, you know, you haven't filled it in. In fact, it's smarter than that because it'll tell me if it's filled in or not, right? So it's conditional. But that's not what we're trying to do, right? We're not trying to fill in a spreadsheet. What we're trying to do is to minimise the downside and maximise the upside. And that's not risk management, right? That is uh, things like uh, change control. It's things like compensation events. It's it's things like uh, logistics. And risk is just one part of it. We've artificially constrained it because 40 years ago, somebody said, this is what the functions are. Right? We've got a function of change control. So those people sit over there. We've got a function of scheduling. Those people sit there. We've got a function of risk management. So those people sit there. That's the way we broke the problem down 40 years ago. And now we've got data and data can segment that that, that problem space as we want to segment it. So it looks for clustering and it looks for s- s- sort of similarities in that data set. It presents back to you about what the clustering is. It might be around risk. It might not be
0: let's use the tools to give us that. Can you give any examples that allow us to, you know, think with context, okay, because it's it's all quite abstract at the moment. Is there any like examples where you can say, this is how we analyze this data, and this was the output that you can share with us? So it's early days,
1: uh, very, very early days in this, right? So if you look at plan stuff, right, Nplund is doing some really, really cool things. So they're trying to move this, and there's people like and links out there as well, Alice Technologies, all those sort of people, Build dots. They're all, all now getting data, and they're saying that we can save X percent on a project because we can preempt where we think the variance is going to come from, right? So that's based around a slice of data, which is probably scheduling data. What I'm arguing is, is that I don't think that is a road that's going to get us to the destination where we need to be, because for me, it's not, a single data set, right? It's got to be an integrated data set. And I've been told something about health and safety today. So the health and safety executive is pooling a load of data on observations and, and incidents and that sort of stuff. And I said, but what's the correlation between that and schedule pressure, right? So if you put in something under loads and loads of pressure and they start to make shortcuts, does that result in incidents? And something else which you're trying to do in terms of health and safety to say, right, if I've got an option of doing a load of reform work or doing some precast stuff, What is the trade space in there about cost, productivity, health and safety, et cetera? We haven't got that trade space at the moment because that analysis is not being so appropriately conducted. So that's what we're trying to fix, basically. So in terms of the evidence, right, it's patchy. It's patchy. And what we're trying to do through the Project Data Analytics Task Force is to start to formulate some of that evidence and to really get it going
0: so in short the challenge i mean we, you you can look for results in all other sectors we just talked about ferrari and uh sky team sky right? the evidence is there the challenge that we have in construction is that we're not pooling and sharing our data and perhaps actually we can talk about that a little bit more because there's a couple of other questions I have, but let's do that right after this break Hello, it's me again. I wanted to share a quick story with you on why I co founded Ceiling with my best mate Chris. Chris and I were both QSs, and this is going to sound sad, but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper based. Number two, it was too time consuming and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, If you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link, its software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you, or someone you know, tenders with subcontractors, you've got to see our software. Head over to our link www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. I will include it in the description box so again there's no excuses. Now let's get right back to the show. I am very impressed Martin by your approach to this. I didn't realise that you were doing in your past freedom of information requests and going to that extent and as an industry, we are plagued by fragmentation, you know, different commercial interests and it's it's all it's it's a difficult industry in in many ways. And having someone trying to unify that with the different organizations that you are and trying to pull all of this information together is clearly what we need. So kudos for that. I want to touch on the experience that you had with trying to get your twenty thousand lessons learned where people say, No, I don't want to give you that, I don't want to give you this because commercial interest were potentially exposed is that five years on or however many years on does that remain an issue for the data and analytics community in construction because that is the key to everything right yeah, it is. Is we need it is. the pool of data to be rich and getting richer and then we will all theoretically as industry get rich and richer
1: yeah so so uh, there's some fundamentals here right so the first fundamental is why are you in business as a construction company? Is it because your intellectual property is better than somebody else's intellectual property, right? Which I don't believe because people are moving around from Jacobs to Bam to somewhere else. You know, everybody's moving around all the time. So if you've got a secret source, it tends to get shown out. So I don't believe that's the case. Now, what is the case is people keep on refining through lean, they get better and better innovation, etc. So you outperform on the basis of your rate of change. You don't outperform on the basis that I've got some secret sort of construction methodology that nobody else has got. So if that's the case, why don't we just open up what everybody's doing and the person who starts to innovate the most is the person who's going to win. right? So you start to pick up more and more work. So we've been talking to the infrastructure projects Authority. There's a cracking lady in there called Joe Jolly, and she's just taken up role and she's responsible for transforming project delivery across all the government. And Joe's view is, as a client, they've driven the entire industry all based around price. So it's a race to the bottom, all right? So if we could flip it around now and say, right, if you can work collegiately and you start to pull your data, pull solutions so we can make the industry better, improve project delivery performance, drive up investment confidence, right? So if you say it's going to cost this amount of money, it costs that amount of money or less. If you can do that, You contribute to that overall body of sort of knowledge and data and information, you're the person I want to work with, right? I don't want to work with an organization who sits on all of my data and tries to sell it back to me, sticks it into tools that they want to charge me for, whatever. So that's what they start to say. Now, when's that going to happen? I think it's going to start happening pretty soon. It's definitely going to be the next risk framework, right? Some of this thinking is going to be the next risk framework for, for national highways. So it's coming. Right, this is coming down the tracks. So what does that mean? Right, It means we need to find a way of pooling data. So what we did about four years ago, so me and a chap called Grant Finlay and Gareth Park, so they were from Southern Macalpine at the time, and Grant's moved on to MSG since. We put proposals into government, innovation proposals, to set up a construction data trust. And they came back and said, no, it's not going to happen because it's all too difficult and nobody's going to collaborate. Right, We don't believe industry is going to collaborate. So we tried again. And then you
0: said, you said, hang on a minute, check my track record out. I am willing to do nigh on anything and go to court for this. And they said, all right, actually, fair enough. Let's give you a go. Yeah.
1: So we put in four innovation proposals, right, into loads of different parts of government or whatever, and they all failed. And they failed because people were judging their preconception of whether this thing's going to work or not. They weren't judging the idea. So me, Grant and Gareth says, right, let's make it happen. So... I've been pumping in loads of effort, and they pumped some money in, I pumped some money in, and then we got in people like a chap called Matt Hyam, who's the Chief Digital Officer for Costain. we've got Michelle Barkas, who's the Chief Information Officer for MACE. We've got the Chief Execs behind it, that's Grant's doing, right? He's pulled in, in the Chief Execs. We're now working with the Construction Productivity Task Force and pooling their data.
0: So it does sound like there's more and more appetite for this from some of the key players. Yeah,
1: and and recently as well, we've pulled in Joe, right? So Joe is from the Infrastructure Projects Authority and she's a director of Construction Data Limited, right? So you've got a crown servant who's a director of this data trust. Now, the data trust is a not-for-profit, right? It's a not-for-profit vehicle. We can't call it a trust because that's a protected word, right? So it's called Constructed Data Limited. But it's got a not-for-profit mandate where it's working for the greater good of the profession. And there's people like Mark Reynolds, who's right behind it, and Paul Hamer from Silver McAlpine, who's saying, this is the thinking that we want to promote.
0: Fantastic. So it it feels very much like you've been dragging your feet through mud for a, a few years, but you're actually starting to get to the point now where, for all of the listeners, Martin is smiling a lot at the moment when he's, when he's describing where this is. So it feels like you're in a far more positive position and you're going to start to see the change when we imagine a construction industry in the future where you have what you're envision what you're imagining the industry to look like how what does a project team look like you talked to me about you know you wouldn't need risk managers qs's in their current guys they would change and evolve well, how do you see it what do you think about the future of construction so
1: basically, all the process monkey parts of our job, right? the bits we don't like doing, is all going to go, right? All that will get automated. And that's a good thing. Right? That's a good thing for society. It's a good thing for everybody. It's work we don't want to be doing. We don't like doing. And because we don't like doing it, we probably don't do it very well. It becomes a Friday job and you don't put stuff in that you should be putting in, it, et cetera. So if we can get rid of all of that, we start to drive up consistency. We drive up data volumes. If we then drive up data volumes, that's where we can innovate. So we then start to look for the patterns in the data that informs our interventions. So we're now starting to intervene on projects based around what the data is telling us, not based around hunches, assertions, projects, etc. So it's all data driven. And if you don't follow the data, you leave a forensic data plume. And if you don't follow it and your project goes pear-shaped, then you can bring somebody like me and I'll say, you know, they didn't listen to the data. So, give it a couple of years of that, right? There'll be court cases around that as well. Is that, you know, somebody didn't listen to the data, they were reckless, and then we'll flip the industry that way as well. So, I think all of this is coming, just the pace of it, and it's all possible today. It's just data volumes, pace, ambition.
0: And so, if you're a QS, that I know that there are young QSs, there are intermediate QSs, there are senior QSs who are listening to this show right now, and they are thinking, oh, it sounds like a load of nonsense to me. Or some of them are thinking this sounds fascinating. I'm really interested. What would your advice be to someone who is a QS about how they can not retrain, or but how how they can picture their future in the industry and how they can become a pivotal part? Because it's almost you could argue like this is we're actually reporting at the very beginning of a revolution here, right? And you can position yourself if you are a professional, young professional, whoever in a completely different way, so that in five, 10, 15 years, when this is mainstream, you're gonna be in a position of power to some degree, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so I'd recommend, Paul, you don't ask me, you ask the chap called James Garner. So James Garner's from Gleeds. he's now joined the task force, and I bumped into James a few years ago, and James is a senior director at Gleeds. He was a QS, he's, he's been doing cost estimating for years, et cetera. His job has completely flipped. So he's now in charge of data and insights for all of Gleeds globally. And that is now changing the way that Gleeds are operating. It's changing their thinking, and they're one of the thought leaders. And he put me in front of their chief exec. So they are really pushing this at pace. And they're pushing it because of the work people like James have done. So James is up there, he's mixing it with the top of the shop in a massive organization.
0: And we had James on the show, believe it or not, 25 episodes ago, and I think it was episode 63, and fascinating chap, passionate about this topic, and like you say, QS turned data analysis, isn't he? That's that's, that's his journey. So
1: there's a difference between being a practitioner, right? So there's some people who's going to be hands-on with these tools, and there's some people who just need to know how to do it. If you've done something, if you've played about with Python, if you've played about with PyBar, you've done data pipelines, you understand data security, then you can go toe-to-toe with Microsoft. You can go toe-to-toe with your suppliers. You can talk to your clients on an equal footing. And that's exactly what he's done. And that's driving his strategy. He's now upskilling about 100 people who's been through a one-day course. He's got another like 20 people, 30 people going through the apprenticeship. So it's not old school apprenticeship. It's not like you know when you're 16 and you do your youth training scheme type stuff. If you've done a degree, that doesn't last you a lifetime, right? We've all got to do sort of top-up training. This is just top-up training, right? And people think, well, if I've done a degree, I've got to do a master's next. Who's saying that, right? That's just a society thing. What you need to do is just get another increment of training. So the training we run is a level four course. It's a 15-month course where it's 12 months and then you do your portfolio at the end. And that basically tops up your training. And it's not just about how to drive power behind stuff like that. It's changing the way you think, right? So all this about the forensic data plume of data. It's talking about data trust. It's thinking about the value of data in terms of a byproduct of a process. We're just not exploiting it. And those people who start to shape that, people like James, are just going to outperform all of their peers massively and I'm already seeing it. I'm already seeing
0: it. Yeah, I can imagine. And that's why, you know, there are many, or there are not many opportunities, you know, in life where you can kind of see something in advance. You're obviously a long way ahead. You've been working on this tirelessly for a few years. But if I was, I'm not a practicing QS in industry anymore. I've got my own business. But if I was a QS Thinking about where I wanted to be in the future. Effectively, what you're saying is, a lot of the future work is going to be done for you by machines, etc. But I guess what you can become is a pioneer, a bit like James, right? In it's almost like you are becoming a QS slash data scientist. In some it's kind of like a weird equi- equilibrium between the two, right? A, a blend of the two. Um, and if you can get to, if you can start thinking about that role and how your role is going to evolve in five, 10 years' time now, you're going to be way ahead of the game, right? Which is exactly how you were describing James's journey.
1: So that's absolutely spot on. I think it, it's not, you know, you've got to stop being a QS and you've now got to become a data geek, right? This is a QS with superpowers. So you start to predict the future, you start to preempt things that you couldn't see before. So you start to pull these superpowers out that are just untapped because nobody knows how to do it. So if you can unblock that and you've got more superpowers than anybody else, you're just going to outperform. And these people at the moment, there's a dearth of them. Everybody's stealing stuff off each other because there's not enough in the market. So the rates are going up really, really quickly. And I've said to people, right, if I've got young kids at the moment and I was a QS, I'd think, right, so what's this going to look like in five years' time? And Martin's saying, "Oh, there's transformational change coming," but I disagree with him. It's all going to stay the same. Are you going to bet your house and your mortgage and your kids' livelihood on that? Or could you do a free course because it's paid for by government and get some sort of top-up education where you can make some informed choices? And for me, there's too many people who start "I think that's never going to happen." So, young kids in a house, I'd think I'd like to insure against that. Right.
0: <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer. I, I can see where this is, where this is heading, and it has happened in other industries. Obviously, construction is a laggard beyond all belief, right? Versus other sectors, we've talked about other sectors where it's happening, where it's revolutionising, where it's changing. It's gonna happen to construction. There's been so many blockers, and will continue to be blockers because of the sheer setup of our industry, but. I'm completely with you, right? and this is happening, and people should be thinking about it. And if there's free courses, we'll talk about putting that in the podcast description as well. But I also particularly like, you know, I'm titling this episode The Death of the QS, but as always, I speak to far more intelligent people than myself when I do these interviews, and actually just become a QS with superpowers, as you have so aptly put it. My final question for you, we have a lot of people at SMEs, listening to this show now we've talked about government contracts we've talked about hs2 we've talked about you've mentioned like the Macau ponds the maces these, these big organizations where a there is the ability to get this kind of training and exposure i guess but also the ability to potentially invest in r&d and implement these changes how will data change construction for smes and will that happen at the same pace or is that just something we're going to have to wait for for the smes
1: so there's two sides to this coin right one side to this coin is the smes are really agile right you can just pivot on the pin and you can go much much quicker you can innovate at pace you can experiment you can do stuff you make investments you make strategic investments very very quickly and bigger organizations so so do what i'm doing now i could have never have done it because it's taken me five years to get where i am and most companies would have sacked me after a year, saying, so where's the results, right? And it's not a 12-month game. This, this is a long, long time you've got to get before you get the results. So for SMEs, I think it's a case of, right, where do you want to make your investments? What does the future look like? And where are you going to place your bets, right? And one bet could be, well, nothing's going to change. I'm going to stay in this market. And that's fine, right? That's, that's a perfectly acceptable solution. There'll be a role for you. But there's this new market, this new industry coming out. And I'm convinced if some of the SMEs get together and start to team up, they can outperform some of the big boys, really outperform them.
0: Yeah, because of the that agility that you talk about. Yeah, that, that, that makes perfect sense. And again, there are few opportunities in business where you can identify something that you really believe is going to happen. I'm a firm believer as even a little bit, a lot less than you, but I'm a firm believer that this is where the sector is headed. And, yeah, it does make sense. Are you optimistic? I mean, you're you're smiling from ear to ear, so I think that you are. But are you optimistic about the future of construction?
1: So it's been hard, right? This has been a really, really hard journey. And you said it's like...
0: Are people talking to you again yet?
1: (laughs) So... With the IPA, right? So I went into back with the IPA. There's a chap in there who really did not like what i done. He's now gone to Australia. And Val's out there in Australia. And talked to his bloke. He said, do you know Martin Perry? Yeah, yeah, I know him. Oh, he's a terrorist subversive. He put all these FI requests in whatever. <laughs> so he's still not forgotten now. Like four years later or something, he's still not forgotten. But all these crown servants all move around, right? They all move around. So the IPA has had a change, right? And Nick Smallwood's in there. And I saw Nick Smallwood at the, so he's the chief executive of infrastructure projects authority. So he was at the end plan event and he's softening on all of this now. So the IPA is going to become a thought leader on some of this stuff. And as soon as they're a thought leader, they'll start to take the rest of the government with them. So Joe Jolly has now gone into the IPA with a vision for all this data driven project delivery and saving the planet, et cetera. And Joe's going to be one of those change agents I see that the construction industry is starting to coalesce now. So through the Construction Productivity Task Force, they've said the only way we're going to drive up productivity is by all working together and pooling data. And with machine learning, we've already proven through the hackathons that we run. So there's one on the 28th, 29th of November. So I'd say to your people, get involved. So come and see what it's all about. Just get inspired. So through those hackathons, we've shown that there's not enough data inside of one company. So it was CISC, right? We pulled a load of data out of CISC, and there weren't enough data to train the model on looking at design management, right? And preempting some of the design issues. But they said, if they could double or, or triple that data, we've then got enough. So if you're pulling MACE data, cost MACE data, so on will there's enough then to train the models. And so when you train the models, it will tell you where to focus, and it'll tell you as well where your data is not good enough or where you're not collecting the right data. If you're an old school organisation and you're not bothered about your data or whatever, and you're a progressive organisation and you've got the right data model, you're hoovering up the right data that's feeding all the algorithms you can optimise, and your superpowers then become like finely tuned because you're optimising, 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 that's when you break the system.
0: And so in short, Martin, there remain challenges but you are optimistic about where we're headed. And it has been fantastic to speak to you. Kudos on knocking down walls and getting us to this point and being part of that journey for us all. I will be sharing Martin's details. I'll be sharing details of the um, courses and the training um, as well. And perhaps uh, the details of the next hackathon. And Martin, it just goes without saying that pleasure to have you on the show and thank you for, uh, for talking.
1: It's my pleasure, Paul. It's always good to spread the word. You know, this is important stuff yeah i think we'll see more change in the next five years than you've seen in, in, in the last 50 so it's like a gold rush you know it's full of opportunity and for some people there's downsides but the upside is far far bigger embrace it and change the world it's coming
0: fantastic well guys on that note on that positive note i will leave you and i will speak to you next week thanks so much martin take care mate okay cheers paul
1: thank you